Part four of the Black Bearded Barbarian by Mary Esther Miller MacGregor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five Soldiers two. And now a new day dawned for the lonely young missionary. He had not a convert, but a helper and a delightful companion. His new friend was of bright, joyous nature, the sort that everybody loves. Giam was his surname, but almost everyone called him by his given name, Hua, and those who knew him best called him A Hua. Mackay used this more familiar boyish name for Giam as the younger by a few years. To A Hua, his new friend was always Pastor Mackay, or as the Chinese put it, Mackay Pastor. Kai Boksu was the real Chinese of it, and Kai Boksu soon became a name known all over the island of Formosa. Ahua needed all his kind new friend's help in the new first days after his conversion. For family, relatives and friends turned upon him with the bitterest hatred for taking up the barbarian's religion. So, driven from his friends, he came to live in a little hut by the river with Mackay. While at home these two read, sang and studied together all the day long. It would have been hard for an observer to guess who was teacher and who pupil. For at one time Ahua was receiving Bible instruction, and the next time Mackay was being drilled in the Chinese of the educated classes. Each teacher was as eager to instruct as each pupil was eager to learn. The Bible was, of course, the chief textbook, but they studied other things, astronomy, geology, history, and similar subjects. One day the Canadian took out a map of the world, and the Chinese gazed with amazement at the sight of the many large countries outside China. Ahua had been private secretary to a Mandarin, and had travelled much in China, and once spent six months in Peking. His idea had been that China was everything, that all countries outside it were but insignificant barbarian places. His geography lessons were like revelations. His progress was simply astonishing, as was also Mackay's. The two seemed possessed with the spirit of hard work, but a superstitious old man who lived near believed they were possessed with a demon. He often listened to the two singing, drilling and repeating words as they marched up and down, either in the house or in front of it, and he became alarmed. He was a kindly old fellow, and though a heathen, felt well disposed toward the missionary and Ahua. So one day, very much afraid, he slipped over to the little house with the two small cups of strong tea. He came to the door and proffered them with a polite bow. He hoped they might prove soothing to the disturbed nerves of the patients, he said. He suggested also that a visit to the nearest temple might help them. The two affected ones received his advice politely. But the humour of it struck them both, and when their visitor was gone, they laughed so hard, tea nearly choked them. The missionary was soon able to speak, so fluently that he preached almost every day, either in a little house by the river, or on the street in some open square. There were other things he did too. On every side he saw great suffering from disease. The chief malady was the terrible malaria, and the native doctors, with their ridiculous remedies, only made the poor sufferers worse. Mackay had studied medicine for a short time while in college, and now found his knowledge very useful. He gave some simple remedies to several victims of malaria, which proved effective. The news of the cures spread far and wide. The barbarian was kind. He had a good heart, the people declared. Many more came to him for medicine, and day by day the circle of his friends grew and wherever he went, curing disease, teaching, or praying, Ahua went with him, and shared with him the taunts of their heathen enemies. 
But the gospel was gradually making its way. Not long after Ahua's conversion, a second man confessed Christ. He had previously disturbed the meetings by throwing stones into the doorway whenever he passed. But his sister was cured of malaria by the missionary's medicine, and soon both sister and mother became Christians, and finally the stone-thrower himself. And so gradually the lines of the enemy were falling back, and at every sign of retreat the little army of two advanced. A little army? No. Or was there not the whole host of heaven moving with them? And Mackay was learning that his boyish dreams of glory were truly to be fulfilled. He had wanted always to be a soldier like his grandfather, and fight a great Waterloo. But here he was right in the midst of the battle, the victory and the glory shore. The two missionaries often went on short trips here and there into the country around Damshui, and Mackay determined that when the intense summer heat had lessened, they would make a long tour to some of the large cities. The heat of August was almost overpowering to the Canadian. Flies and mosquitoes and insect pests of all kinds made his life miserable too, and prevented his studying as hard as he wished. One oppressive day he and Ahua returned from a preaching tour in the country to find their home in a state of siege. Right across the threshold lay a monster serpent, eight feet in length. Ahua shouted a warning and seized a long pole, and the two managed to kill it. But their troubles were not yet over. The next morning Mackay stepped outside the door and sprang back just in time to escape another, the mate of the one killed. This one was even larger than the first, and was very fierce. But they finished it with sticks and stones. When September came, the days grew clearer, and the many pests of summer were not so numerous. The mosquitoes and flies that had been such torments disappeared, and there was some relief from the damp, oppressive heat. But he had only begun to enjoy the refreshing breaths of cool air, and had remarked to Ahua that the days reminded him of Canadian summers, and the weather gave him to understand that every Formosan season has its drawbacks. September brought tropical storms and typhoons that were terrible, and he saw from his little house on the hillside big trees torn up by the root, buildings swept away like chaff, and out in the harbour great ships lifted from the anchorage and whirled away to destruction. And then he was sometimes thankful that his little hut was built into the hillside, solid and secure. But the fierce storms cleared away the heavy dampness that had made the heat of the summer so unbearable and October and November brought delightful days. The weather was still warm, of course, but the nights were cool and pleasant. So early one October morning, Mackay and Ahua started off on a tour to the cities. We shall go to Jilung first, said the missionary. Jilung was a seaport town on the northern coast, straight east across the island from Danshui. A coolie to carry food and clothing was hired, and early in the morning, while the stars were still shining, they passed through the sleeping town and put on the little paths between the rice fields. Though it was yet scarcely daylight, the farmers were already in their fields. It was harvest time, the second harvest of the year, and the little rice fields were no longer like mirrors, but were filled with high, rustling grain ready for the sickle. The water had been drained off, and the reaper and thrasher were going through the fields before dawn. There was no machinery like that used at home. The reaper was a short sickle, a thrashing machine, a kind of portable tub, and Mackay looked at them with some amusement, and described to Ahua how they took off the great wheat crops in western Canada. The two were in high spirits, ready for any sort of adventure, and they met some. Toward evening they reached a place called Sekau, 
and went to the little brick inn to get a sleeping place. The landlord came to the door and was about to bid A Hoa enter when the light fell upon Mackay's face. With a shout, black-bearded barbarian, he slammed the door in their faces. They turned away, but already a crowd had begun to gather. The black-bearded barbarian is here. The foreign devil from Danshui has come, was the cry. The mob followed the two down the streets, shouting curses. Someone threw a broken piece of brick, another a stone. Mackay turned and faced them, and for a few moments they seemed cowed. But the crowd was increasing, and he deemed it wise to move on. So the two marched out of the town, followed by stones and curses. As they went, Mackay reminded Ahua of what they had been reading the night before. Yes, said Ahua brightly. The Lord was driven out of his own town in Galilee. Yes, and Paul, we remember, how he was stoned. Our master counts us worthy to suffer for him. But where to go was the question. Before they could decide, night came down upon them, and it came in that sudden tropical way to which Mackay, all his life accustomed to the long, mellow twilights of his northern home, could never grow accustomed. They each took a torch out of the carrier's bag, lighted it, and marched bravely on. The path led along the Jilung River, through tall grass. They were not sure where it led to, thought it wise to follow the river. They would surely come to Jilung sometime. Mackay was ahead, Ahua right at his heels, and behind them the basket-bearer. At a sudden turn in the path, Ahua gave a shout of warning, and the next instant a band of robbers leaped from the long reeds and grass and brandished their spears in the travellers' faces. The torchlight shone on their fierce evil eyes, and their long knives, making a horrible picture. The young Canadian Scot did not flinch for a second. He looked the wild leader straight in the face. We have no money, so you cannot rob us, he said steadily, and you must let us pass at once. I am a teacher, and a teacher, who was interrupted by a dismayed exclamation of several of the wild band. A teacher! As if with one accord, they turned and fled into the darkness. For even a highwayman in China respects a man of learning. The travellers went on again, with something of relief, and something of the exultation that youth feels in having faced danger. But a second trouble was upon them. One of those terrible storms that still raged occasionally had been brewing all evening, and now it opened its artillery. Great howling gusts came down from the mountain, carrying sheets of driving rain. Their torches went out like matches, and they were left to stagger along in the black darkness. What were they to do? They could not go back. They could not stay there. They scarcely dared go on, for they did not know the way. At any moment a fresh blast of wind, or a misstep, might hurl them into the river. But they decided that they must go on, and on they went, stumbling, slipping, sprawling, and falling outright. Now there would be an exclamation from Mackay as he sank to the knees in the mud of a rice-field. Now a groan from Ahua as he fell over a boulder and bruised and scratched himself. An oftenest a yell from the poor coolie as he slipped, baskets and all, into some rocky crevice, and was sure he was tumbling into the river, but they staggered on. Mackay, secure in his faith in God. His father knew, and his father would keep him safely. And behind him came brave young Ahua buoyed up by his new growing faith and learning the lesson that sometimes the captain asks his soldier to march into hard encounters but that the soldier must never flinch the everlasting arms 
were around them, for by midnight they reached Jilung. They were drenched, breathless, and worn out. And they spent the night in a damp hovel, glad of any shelter from the wind and rain. But the next morning, young soldier A Hua had a fiercer battle to fight than with any robbers or storms. As soon as the city was astir, Mackay and he went out to find a good place to preach. They passed down the main thoroughfare, and everywhere they attracted attention. Cries of ugly barbarian, an oftenest black-bearded barbarian, were heard on all sides. A Hua was known in Jilung, and contempt and ridicule was heaped upon him by his college acquaintances. He was consorting with the barbarian. He was a friend of this foreigner. They poured more insults upon him than they did upon the barbarian himself. Some took the stranger as a joke, and laughed, and made funny remarks upon his appearance. Here and there an old woman peeping through the doorway would utter a loud cackling laugh, and pointing a wizened finger at the missionary would cry, Eh? Eh? Look at him! <laughs> He's got a wash-basin on for that! Ahua was distressed at these remarks, but Mackay was highly amused. We're drawing a crowd anyway, he remarked cheerfully, and that's what we want. Soon they came to an open square, in front of a heathen temple. The building had several large stone steps leading up to the door. Mackay mounted them and stood facing the buzzing crowd with Ahua at his side. They started a hymn. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. The open square in front of them began to fill rapidly. The people jostled each other in their endeavours to get a view of the barbarian. Everyone was curious, but everyone was angry and indignant, so sometimes the sound of the singing was lost in the shouts of derision. When the hymn was finished, Mackay had a sudden inspiration. They will surely listen to one of their own people, he said to himself, and turned to Ahua. Speak to them, he said. Tell them about the true God. That was a hard moment for the young convert. He had been a Christian only a few months, and had never yet spoken in public for Christ. He looked desperately over the sea of mocking faces beneath him. He opened his mouth as though to speak, and hesitated. Just then came a rough and bitter taunt from one of his old companions. It was too much. Ahua turned away and hung his head. The young missionary said nothing, but he did the very wisest thing he could have done. He had some time before taught Ahua a grand old Scottish paraphrase. They had often sung it together. I am not ashamed to own my lord, or to defend his cause, maintain the glory of his cross, and honour all his laws. Mackay's voice, loud and clear, burst into this fine old hymn. Ahua raised his head. He joined in the hymn and sang it to the end. It put metal into him. It was the battle-song that brought back the young recruit's courage. Almost before the last note sounded, he began to speak. His voice rang out bold and unafraid over the crowd of angry heathen. "'I am a Christian,' he said distinctly. "'I worship the true God. I cannot worship idols,' with a gesture toward the temple door, that rats can destroy. "'I am not afraid. I love Jesus. He is my saviour and friend.' No, Ahua was not ashamed any more. His testing time had come, and he had not failed after all and his brave true words sent a thrill of joy through the more seasoned soldier at his side. That was not the only difficult situation he met on that journey. The two soldiers of the cross had many trials, but the thrill of that victory before the Jilung temple never left them. 
When they returned to Dashue, they held daily services in their house, and Ahua often spoke to the people who gathered there. One Sunday they noticed an old woman present who had come down the river in a boat. Women, as a rule, did not come out to the meetings, but this old lady continued to come every Sunday. She showed great interest in the missionary's words, and at the close of one meeting he spoke to her. She told him that she was a poor widow, that her name was Taso, that she had come down the river from Go Kuo Ki to hear him preach. Then she added, I have passed through many trials in this world, and my idols never gave me any comfort. Then her eyes shone, but I like your teaching very much, she went on. I believe the God you tell about will give me peace. I will come again and bring others. Next Sunday she was there with several other women, and after that she came every Sunday, bringing more each time, until at last a whole boatload would come down to the service. These people were so interested that they asked the missionary if he would not visit them. So one day he and Ahua boarded one of the queer-looking flat-bottomed river-boats and were pulled up the rapids to Ngor-Kor-Ki. Every village in Formosa had its headman, who was virtually the ruler of the place. When the boat landed, many of the villagers were at the shore to meet their visitors and took them at once to their mayor's house, best building in the village. Tan Pao, a fine, big, powerfully built man, received them cordially. He frankly declared that he was tired and sick of idols, and wanted to hear more of this new religion. An empty granary was obtained for both church and home, and the missionary and his assistant took up their quarters there, and for several months they remained, preaching and teaching the Bible, either in Ngokuoki or in the lovely surrounding valleys. Chapter 6 The Great Kai Bok Su the missionary was now becoming a familiar figure both in Danshui and in the surrounding country. By many he was loved, by all he was respected, but by a large number he was bitterly hated. The scholars continued his worst enemies. They could never forgive him for beating them so completely in argument in the days when Ahua was striving for the light. And their hatred increased as they saw other scholars becoming Christians under his teaching. There was something about him, however, compelled their respect and even their admiration. Wherever they met him, on the street, by their temples, or on the country roads, he bore himself in such a way as to make them confess that he was their superior, both in ability and knowledge. These Chinese literati had a custom which Mackay found very interesting. One proud scholar marching down the street, and scarcely noticing the obsequious bows of his inferiors, would meet another equally proud scholar. Each would salute the other in an exceedingly grand manner, and then one would spin off a quotation from the writings of Confucius or some other Chinese sage, and say, Now, tell me where that is found. And scholar number two had to ransack his brains to remember where the saying was found, or else confess himself beaten. Mackay thought it might be a good habit for the graduates of his own alma mater across the wide sea to adopt. He wondered what some of his old college chums would think if, when he got back to Canada, he should buttonhole one on the street some day, recite a quotation from Shakespeare or Macaulay, and demand from his friend where it could be found. He had a suspicion that the old friend would be afraid that the Oriental son had touched 
George Mackay's brain. Nevertheless, he thought the custom one he could turn to good account, and before long he was trying it himself. He had such a wonderful memory that he never forgot anything he had once read. So the scholars of North Formosa soon discovered again to their humiliation that this Kai Bok-su of Danshui could beat them at their own game. They did not care how much he might profess to know of writers and lands beyond China. Such were only barbarians anyway. But when right before a crowd, he would display a surer knowledge of the Chinese classics than they themselves, they began not only to respect, but to fear him. There was no use trying to humiliate him with a quotation. With his bright eyes flashing, he would tell without a moment's hesitation where it was found, come back at the questioner swiftly with another, most probably one long forgotten, and reel it off as though he had studied Chinese all his life. He was a wonderful man, certainly, they all agreed, and one whom it was not safe to oppose. The common people liked him better every day. He was so tactful, so kind and always so careful not to arouse the prejudice of the heathen. He was extremely wise in dealing with their superstitions, no matter how absurd or childish they might be. He never ridiculed them, but only strove to show the people how much happier they might be if they believed in God as their father and in Jesus Christ as their saviour. He never made light of anything sacred to the Chinese mind, always tried to take whatever germ of good he could find in their religion and lean on from it to the greater good found in Christianity. He discovered that the ancestral worship made the younger people kind and respectful to older folk, and he saw that Chinese children reverenced their parents and elders in a way that he felt many of his young friends across the sea could do well to copy. One day when he and Ah Hua were out on a preaching tour, the wise Kai Bok-su made use of this respect for parents in quieting a mob. He and his comrade were standing side by side on the steps of a heathen temple, as they had done at Jilung. The angry crowd was scowling and muttering, ready to throw stones as soon as the preacher uttered a word. Mackay knew this, and when they had sung a hymn, and the people waited, ready for a riot, his voice rang out clear and steady, repeating the fifth commandment. Honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. A silence fell over the muttering crowd, and an old heathen, whose queue was white, and whose aged hands trembled on the top of his staff, nodded his head and said, That is heavenly doctrine. The people were surprised and disarmed. If the black-bearded barbarian taught such truths as this, he surely was not so very wicked after all and so they listened attentively as he went on to show that they had all one great father, even God. He sometimes found it rather a task to treat with respect that which the Chinese held sacred. Especially was this so when he discovered to his amusement, and to some carefully concealed disgust, that in the Chinese family the pig was looked upon with affection. As a young naval officer, who visited Mackay remarked, treated like a gentleman. Every Chinese house of any size was made up of three buildings, joined together so as to make three sides of an enclosure. This space was called a court, and a door led from it to another next to the street. In this outer yard pigs and fowl were always to be found. Whenever the missionary dropped in at a home, Mother Pig and all the little pigs often followed him outside the house, 
quite like members of the family. Everyone was always glad to see Kai Boksu, pigs and all, and as soon as he appeared the order was given, Infuse tea! And when the little handleless cups of clear brown liquid were passed around, and they all drank and chatted, Mrs. Pig and her children strolled about as welcome as the guest. The Chinese would allow no one to hurt their pigs either. One day as Mackay sat in his new rooms, facing the river, battling with some new Chinese characters, he heard a great hubbub coming up the street. The threatening mobs that used to surround his house had long ago ceased to trouble him. He arose in some surprise and went to the door to see what was the matter. A very unusual sight for Dan Shui met his gaze. Coming up the street at a wild run were some half-dozen English sailors, their loose blue blouses and trousers flapping madly. They were evidently from a ship which Mackay had seen lying in the harbour that morning. "'Give us a gun!' roared the foremost as soon as he saw the missionary. Mackay did not possess a gun, and would not have given the enraged blue jacket one had he owned a dozen. But the Chinese mob, roaring with fury, were coming up the street after the men, and he swiftly pointed out a narrow alley that led down to the river. "'Right down there!' he shouted to the sailors. "'You can get to your boats before they find you.' They were gone in an instant, and the next moment the crowd of pursuers were storming about the door, demanding whither the enemy had disappeared. "'What is all this disturbance about?' demanded Kai bok calmly, glad of an opportunity to gain time for the fleeing sailors. The aggrieved Chinese gathered about him, each telling the story as loud as his voice would permit. Those barbarians of the sea had come swaggering along the streets, waving their big sticks and they had dared, yes, actually dared, to hit the pet pigs belonging to every house as they passed, the poor pigs who lay sunning themselves at the door. This was indeed a serious offence. Mackay could picture the rollicking sailor lads gaily whacking the lazy porkers with their canes as they passed, happily unconscious of the trouble they were raising. But there was no amusement in Kai bok grave face. He spoke kindly and soothingly, and promised that if the offenders misbehaved again, he would complain to the authorities. That made it all right. Heathen though they were, they knew Kai bok promise would not be broken, and away they went, quite satisfied. One day he learned, quite by accident, a new and very useful way of helping his people. He and Ahua and several other young men, who had become Christians, went on a missionary tour to Tekkan, a large city which he had visited once before. On a day they left the palace, Kai Boksu's preaching had drawn such crowds that the authorities of the city became aware of him. And when the little party left, a dozen soldiers were sent to follow the dangerous barbarian and his students, and see they did not bewitch the people on the road. The soldiers tramped along after the missionary party, and with his usual ability to make use of any situation, Mackay stepped back and chatted with the spies. He found one poor fellow in agony with a toothache. This malady was very common in North Formosa, partly owing to the habit of chewing the beetle nut. He examined the aching tooth and found it badly decayed. There is a worm in it, the soldier said, for the Formosan doctors had taught the people this was the cause of toothache. Mackay had no forceps, but he knew how to pull a tooth, and he was not the sort to be daunted by a lack of tools. He got a piece of hard wood, whittled it into shape, and with it pried out the tooth. The relief from pain was so great that the soldier almost wept for joy and overwhelmed the tooth-puller with gratitude. 
and for the remainder of the journey the guards sent to spy on the missionary's doings were his warmest friends. After this, dentistry became a part of this many-sided missionary's work. He went to a native blacksmith and had a pair of forceps hammered out of iron. It was a rather clumsy instrument, but it proved of great value. And later he sent for a complete set of the best instruments made in New York. So with forceps in one hand and the Bible in the other, Mackay found himself doubly equipped. Every second person seemed to be suffering from toothache, and when the pain was relieved by the missionary, the patient was in a state of mind to receive his teaching kindly. The cruel methods by which the native doctors extracted teeth often caused more suffering than the toothache, which sometimes even resulted in death through blood poisoning. Ahua and some of the other young converts learned from their teacher how to pull a tooth, and they too became experts in the art. Whenever they visited a town or city after this, they had a program, which they always followed. First they would place themselves in front of an idle temple or in an open square. Here they would sing a hymn, which always attracted a crowd. Next, anyone who wanted a tooth pulled was invited to come forward. Many accepted the invitation gladly, and sometimes a long line of twenty or thirty would be waiting each his turn. The Chinese had considerable nerve, the Canadian discovered, and stood the pain bravely. They literally stood it too, for there was no dentist's chair, and every man stood up for his operation, very much pleased and very grateful when it was over. Then there were quinine and other simple remedies for malaria handed round, for in a Formosan crowd there were often many shaking in the grip of this terrible disease. And now, having opened the people's hearts by his kindness, Kai Boksu brought forth his cure for souls. He would mount the steps of the temple, or stand on a box or stone, and tell the wonderful old story of the man, Jesus, who was also God, and who said to all sick and weary and troubled ones, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Often when he had finished, the disease of sin in many a heart was cured by the remedy of the gospel. And so the autumn passed away happily and busily, and Mackay entered his first Formosan winter. And such a winter! The young man, who had felt the clear, bright cold of a Canadian January, needed all his fine courage to bear up under its dreariness. It started about Christmas time. Just when his own people, far away in Canada, were gathering about the blazing fire, or jingling over the crisp snow in sleighs and cutters, the great winter rains commenced. Christmas Day, his first Christmas in the land that did not know its beautiful meaning, was one long dreary downpour. It rained steadily all Christmas week. It poured on New Year's Day, and for a week after. It came down in torrents all January. February set in, and still it rained and rained, with only a short interval each afternoon. Day and night, week in, week out, it poured, until Mackay forgot what sunlight looked like. His house grew damp, his clothes mouldy. A stream broke out up on the hill behind, and one morning he awoke to find a cascade tumbling into his kitchen and rushing across the floor out into the river beyond. And still it poured, and the winter blew, and everything was damp and cold and dreary. He caught an occasional glimpse of snow, only a very far-off view, for it lay away up on the top of a mountain. But it made his heart long for just one breath of good, dry Canadian air, just one whiff of the keen-cutting frost. But Kai Boksu 
was not the sort to spend these dismal days repining. Indeed, he had no time, even had he been so inclined. His work filled up every minute of every rainy day and hours of the drenched night. If there was no sunshine outside, there was plenty in his brave heart, and A Hua's whole nature radiated brightness. And there were many reasons for being happy after all. On the second Sabbath of February, 1873, just one year after his arrival in Danshui, the missionary announced at the close of one of his Sabbath services that he would receive a number into the Christian church. There was instantly a commotion among the heathen who were in the house, and yells and cheers from those crowding about the door outside. "'We'll stop him,' they shouted. "'Let us beat the converts,' was another cry. But Mackay went quietly on with the beautiful ceremony, in spite of the disturbance. Five young men with Ahua at their head came, and were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When the next Sabbath came, these five with their missionaries sat down for the first time to partake of the Lord's Supper. It was a very impressive ceremony. One young fellow broke down, declaring he was not worthy. Mackay took him alone into his little room, and they prayed together, and the young man came out to the Lord's Supper comforted, knowing that all might be worthy in Jesus Christ. Spring came at last, bright and clear, and Mackay announced to Ahua that they must go up the river and visit their friends at Gorkwaki. The two did not go alone this time. Three other young men who wanted to be missionaries were now spending their days with their teacher, learning with Ahua how to preach the gospel. So it was quite a little band of disciples that walked along the river bank up to Gorkwaki. Mackay preached at all the villages along the route and visited the homes of Christians. One day, as they passed a yamen or Chinese courthouse where a mandarin was trying some cases, they stepped in to see what was going on. At the end of the room sat the mandarin, who was judge. He was dressed in magnificent silks, and looked down very haughtily upon the lesser people and the retinue of servants who were gathered about him. On either side of the room stood a row of constables, and near them the executioners. The rest of the room was filled with friends of the people on trial, and by the rabble from the street. The missionaries mixed with the former, and stood watching proceedings. There were no lawyers, no jury. The mandarin's decision was law. The first case was one of theft. Whether the man had really committed the crime or not was a question, freely discussed among the onlookers around Mackay. But there seemed no doubt as to his punishment being swift and heavy. He has not paid the mandarin friend explained to the missionary. He will be punished. The mandarin eats cash, remarked another with a shrug. It was a saying to which Mackay had become accustomed, for it was one of the shameless proverbs of poor, oppressed Formosa. The case was soon finished. Nothing was definitely proven against the man, but the mandarin pronounced the sentence of death. The victim was hurried out, shrieking his innocence and praying for mercy. Case followed case each one becoming more revolting than the last to the eyes of the young man accustomed to British justice. Imprisonment and torture were meted out to prisoners, and even witnesses who laid hold of and beaten on the face by the executioners if their tale did not suit the mandarin. Men who were clearly guilty, but had given the judge a liberal bribe, were let off, while innocent men were made to pay heavy fines, or were thrown into prison. The young missionary went out, and on his way, sickened by the sights he had witnessed, 
and as he went he raised his eyes to heaven and prayed fervently that he might be a faithful preacher of the gospel and that one day formosa would be a christian land and justice and oppression be done away the next scene was a happier one there was an earnest little band of christians in guo kuo ki and two of the young people were about to be married it was the first christian marriage in the place and kai bok su was called upon to officiate there was a great deal of opposition raised among the heathen but after seeing the ceremony they all voted a christian wedding everything that was beautiful and good end of part four